Matthew 28. You would meet with us by your Spirit through your Word. That you would open our eyes to understand what your Word has to say. That you would open our hearts to receive it and rejoice in it. And that you would graciously bend our wills to conform to it. Father, help us to understand your heart for the people groups of our world, like the Malay, who need the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, Father, give us grace, give us wisdom. We pray against the spiritual warfare that will undoubtedly take place in the coming minutes and hours and trust that you will accomplish what you desire through your word. We pray this in the name of our resurrected King, Jesus. Amen. Matthew 28, verse 16. The eleven disciples traveled to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshipped. But some doubted. Jesus came near and said to them, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. Question, how did you first come to hear about Jesus? Who are the people involved? What was the context? How old were you? What is that story? Without trying to dishonor your story and without trying to flatten our stories, I would suggest that there is a unifying factor among all of our stories, every single one of us, regarding the reason or the context in which we first heard about Jesus and his gospel. And the unifying factor is this. Someone obeyed this text. And that is how you heard about Jesus. Someone's allegiance flipped from self and sin and society and Satan And their allegiance flipped to the once dead, now living, resurrected king, whose name is Jesus. And their life was never the same. And they told someone who 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 told told you. Whether or not you have yet accepted the fact that Jesus is king. But consider this for just a second. 
what if you had grown up in an area where there was no church that met in your language? Or if there wasn't one Christian within 100 miles who even spoke your language? Or if your native language was completely oral with no written language yet and therefore no possibility for you to encounter the God of Scripture because there's no Scripture in your language? Or what if you grew up in abject poverty, cut off from the rest of the developing world from reasons that are not of your doing, with no gospel witness within 100 miles of the village that you would never leave in your lifetime. If any one of these situations had described you, which, by the way, they don't, but if they had described you, what would be the likelihood that you would have heard about Jesus, much less be sitting in a Christian church on a Sunday morning? I want you to hold those thoughts for a moment in your hand. And now let's consider the text we've just read in order to move nearer to the heart of God for the nations. Consider with me first the resurrected words then. The words of our resurrected king. The context of Matthew 28 is the resurrection of Jesus. The enemy gave Jesus his best shot. They threw everything at him that they could, and Jesus absorbed it all and overcame it. It looked like a 15th round knockout for Satan, and in reality, it was the final bell on his coming defeat. And the disciples have a mixed reaction. When they see Jesus, some worship and some doubt. And I love how verse 18 describes Jesus. Jesus comes near. See, that's what the resurrection does. The resurrection brings Christ, the Son of God, near. And even in our mixed responses to the resurrection, which is confident faith in one moment, right? And maybe in the next moment, wavering faith and some doubt, Regardless of our mixed responses, Jesus draws near because he's alive. Dead people can't draw near, but Jesus can. So he then empowers his followers by addressing their fear. He speaks to their doubts with three comprehensive statements. First, all authority has been given to me. Verse 18. Jesus has all-encompassing power and authority. There's nothing left to fear. That's why individuals can go to foreign countries where those foreign governments make laws against the progress of the gospel, and those individuals have no fear or need not fear. Because Jesus has been given all authority. Number two, His presence is all-encompassing, not just his power, but his presence. Verse 20, I am with you always to the end of the age. And sandwiched in between God's, or Jesus' all-encompassing power and his all-encompassing presence is an all-encompassing command. Make disciples 
of all the nations. Verse 19. Now the word nations is the Greek word ethne. Do you hear in that the beginning of some English words like ethnic and ethnicity? The word ethne, the word nations, does not refer to politically sovereign states with geographic boundaries on a map. The word refers to people groups, ethnicities. Now, where did this concern for all people groups come from in the Bible? Is this a new thing beginning in Matthew 28? It's easy to think that in the Old Testament, the scriptures are almost exclusively focused on one people group, right? The Jewish nation, the Jewish people. But is that the case? Is that the case that the Bible to this point is exclusively focused on the Jewish people and it's only when Jesus gives this command that all of a sudden God has gotten a heart for the nations beyond the Israel people? Well, we've got to go all the way back to Genesis to answer that question. These verses will be on the screen. Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. Then the Lord God formed man out of the dust of the ground and breathed the breath of life into his nostrils and the man became a living being. God then tells that man and the woman he creates to multiply and fill the earth. And thousands of years later, in a sermon to the nations, the Apostle Paul comments on Genesis 2 on Adam in chapter, Acts chapter 17, verse 26. He says, for one man, Adam, from one man, he has made every nationality to live over the whole earth and has determined their appointed times and the boundaries of where, they're li- where they live. You'd be hard-pressed to find another statement of the absolute sovereignty of God over all things that is more clear than that in all of the Scriptures. So why did God appoint their times and the boundaries of where they live? The verse tells us. He did this so that they might seek God. God's sovereignty is leveraged toward the nations so that they might seek Him. God desires every nationality to seek Him. The psalmist goes so far, we sung about about it this morning, to connect God's blessing of His people specifically, in context, the Jewish people, the Old Testament people of God, but all of the people of God, including the church, God's blessing of His people with God's desire to bless all nations. Psalm 67, verses 1 through 3. May God be gracious to us and bless us. May He make His face to shine upon us. Why? So that we can live in peace and prosperity? No. So that your way, God, may be known on earth your salvation among all nations. Why are we as American Christians blessed with so much wealth and prosperity? So that God's salvation might be known among the nations. Let the peoples praise you, God. Let all the peoples praise you. The psalmist is just riffing off of a promise that God gave to Abraham. So now we're going back to Genesis, chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. The Lord God said to Abram, that's Abraham, 
Go from your land, your relatives and your father's house, to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt. And here's the part we want to hold, hone in on. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So not people generally, but peoples specifically. Now, how did this blessing come about? How did God determine that he would bring blessing through Abraham to all of the peoples? Well, it came about through the Lord Jesus. Abraham fathered Jacob. Jacob became known as Israel, from whom the nation of Israel descended. Jesus is a direct descendant of Abraham The same Jesus who died for our sins, according to the scriptures, was buried and rose again the third day, according to the scriptures, so that all mankind might be reconciled to God. Do you realize you and I are included in that word peoples in Genesis 12? You and I have been blessed through Abraham because of Jesus. And will this promise to Abraham be ultimately fulfilled? Will all the peoples of the earth be blessed? And the answer to that is without question, yes. Let's go to the end of the story, Revelation chapter 7. And after this, I looked, and there was a vast multitude from every nation tribe, people, and language which no one could number. Standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. Now skipping to verse 17, For the Lamb who is at the center of the throne will shepherd them. He will guide them to the springs of the waters of life, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Friends, this has always been God's plan. People from every nation, tribe, people, language, worshiping together, enjoying the blessing of the presence of God among them. Now listen to the words of Jesus as he talks with two of his disciples after the resurrection. Luke chapter 24. Jesus opened their minds to understand the scriptures. So he says to them, this is what is written in the Old Testament scriptures. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead the third day. And then what? And then repentance for forgiveness of sins will be proclaimed in his name to all the nations. This has always been the plan of God. Every nation, tribe, people, and language group needs to hear repentance for forgiveness of sins in the name of Jesus in order to receive the blessing promised to them through Abraham. So these are the resurrected Redeemer's words then. But let's talk about our reality now. Today, on our planet, there are 8.1 
billion people alive. That is a hard number to wrap our minds around. We need something more manageable that we can work with. If Jesus wants his gospel proclaimed among all the nations, all the people groups, we need to know how many people groups there are, not just how many billion peoples there are on the face of the planets. So if on the planet, I said planets, planets. If we think of people groups as closest to the Bible's language of ethnicities, then we're talking about groups of people with the same language or dialect, the same ethnicity, religion, caste, and culture. That's what we're talking about when we're talking about a people group defined by characteristics like these. The definition, by this definition of a people group, or rather I should say it this way, the definition of a people group and the number of people groups varies depending on who you're reading in missiology. But the Joshua Project, I would encourage you to write that down or text your spouse so you have the name, the Joshua Project. Look this up online, download their app. They live in these numbers. They have a people group of the day that they will email you or text you or push notifications so you can pray for an unreached people group. According to them, there are approximately 17,000 people groups on the earth. So how many of these 8.1 billion people among the 17,000 people groups are not followers of Jesus? And the answer to that is an enormous amount, okay? Current estimates say that there are 2.6 billion professing Christians, and that's without any qualifiers. Those are individual who, individuals who profess to follow Christ. That's approximately 32% of the world's population. Now, in reality, it's less than 32% because this does not take into account the fact that not all professors are possessors of faith in Jesus Christ alone. But it's a number that we can work with. So that means that there are at least 68, there is at least 68% of the world and 5.5 billion people who are quote-unquote lost, if we want to use that terminology. They are outside of Christ, not followers of Jesus. But here's the thing. The majority of the 68% who do not profess to follow Jesus still live in some proximity to the gospel. In reality, they're not lost. There is a Christian church nearby. There's a very real possibility they overlap in life with followers of Jesus. The reason they are not following Jesus isn't because they don't have access to him. Some of those 5.5 billion people are your neighbors, your coworkers, our family members. Many of these have a Bible in their language, churches near them preaching the gospel in their language. So that for the majority of the men and women who are lost, the issue is not access to the gospel. The issue is acceptance of the gospel. We call cultures and people groups that have a sufficient gospel witness 
as reached. They've been reached by the gospel. They may have rejected it, and maybe not 100% of the individuals within that people group or culture have actually heard the gospel, but there's a su- sufficient gospel witness in that culture, in that people group, for them to hear the gospel. So what about the unreached? Missiologists define unreached people groups as those among whom Jesus is largely unknown and within whom the church is relatively insufficient to make Jesus known in its broader population without outside help. So in the case of the people group we just heard about, 13 million people, we're not aware of any Christians. Now there may be, but not a sufficient amount to reach that people group with the gospel. So with that definition before us, how many people in the world are unreached? And the answer is 3.4 billion people across 7,400 distinct people groups, or approximately 42% of the world's population. billion people who have been born, who are living, and who will die without ever interacting with a Christian. Without ever hearing the name of Jesus Christ. Without ever knowing whatever false gods are in their culture, they cannot save, they can only damn. 3.4 billion. Now, the unreached are unreached for a reason. There are spiritual warfare reasons. Now, it is quite reasonable to expect that you, individually and as a couple, as a family, have experienced some unusual things in the past 24 hours that almost discouraged you from gathering with your church family this morning. Why should that not surprise us? Do you think the enemy wants the church of Jesus Christ to be aware that there are 3.4 billion people still in darkness? Of course not. He's going to do everything possible to dull our senses, distract our minds and our hearts, so we don't think about the 7,400 people groups that have no access to the gospel. Reaching the unreached is also dangerous. There are many obstacles. There are natural barriers like geographic challenges. There are political barriers. There are developmental barriers like insufficient education among a people group or economic challenges within a particular country. There are social barriers like slavery and trafficking and violence. And of course, there are linguistic barriers. There are 7,000 languages in our world today. 7,000 spoken languages. Approximately half of them, 3,500, have little or no scripture in their language. Of 
that number of those 3,500 that have little or no scripture in their language, over 3,000 of those languages are completely oral. That means there is no alphabet. There is no written system for that language. I brought with me this morning a Burmese Bible. I can't read it. It looks like circles connected by dots all over the pages. Adoniram Judson spent 24 years of his life translating the Bible into Burmese. And guess what? There is a thriving Burmese church today. 24 years. There are some sitting in this room that haven't been alive that long. Linguistic challenges. But what will happen to these 3.4 billion men, women, and children if we don't move through the obstacles to take them the gospel? 3.4 billion precious souls made in the image of God, bearing his likeness, will spend eternity separated from God after death outside of his presence to bless. And if that wasn't the case, then why would Jesus send us to go reach them? If reaching them with the gospel gives them the opportunity to receive it or reject it, wouldn't it be better to not take them the gospel so they don't have an opportunity to receive it or reject it if in the end they're going to be saved anyway? But that's not what the scriptures teach. There is no innocent man, woman, or children on the man, woman, or child on the face of the planet. We're born in our sin, separated from God, made to image him, but perverting his image daily. So if nothing changes, these 3.4 billion individuals will spend eternity separated from God. This is what Romans chapter 10, verses 13 through 15 tells us. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That is a promise that we can hang on to. But he's not done. How then can they call on him in whom they've not believed? And how can they believe without hearing about him? And now can they hear about him without a preacher to tell them? And how can they preach unless they be sent? So the words of the resurrected king then are reality now. How about next our responsibilities? Back to Jesus' words. Jesus gives one main command. Make disciples of all people groups. David Platt says this, The Great Commission is not a general command to make disciples of as many people as possible. The Great Commission is a specific command to make disciples among all the nations. And Jesus gives us the process. Going, make disciples. So we make disciples as we go, as we live our life. We make disciples second by baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. And third, we make disciples by teaching them to obey Jesus. 
So let me be clear. The Great Commission is about the proclamation that the King of the Kingdom of Heaven is worthy and inviting all peoples to receive Him, worship Him, and serve Him as Savior, Lord, and treasure. The Great Commission is not the exportation of Western values, civilization, and culture. Now, the church has failed in this regard at times in the past. At times, the church has been complicit in imperial conquest of nations. And the result is a messy mix of colonialism and Christianity in some parts of the world. And we should lament that. And Christians in those, cons- in those countries have the responsibility to help lead the way in disenculturating from Western civilization and culture what it means to follow Jesus so that their Christ-following communities represent the best of their culture, the culture in which they are situated. But simply because the church has made mistakes in the past doesn't mean we don't obey Jesus today. We don't stop people from studying medicine because there have been bad doctors. Nor do we devalue education because there are some bad teachers and bad educational philosophies. Neither should we ignore our Lord's command simply because of bad missionary practices in the past. As tragic as that part of the church's story is, the church is still plan A in the Great Commission. And there is no plan B. Jesus is still building his church despite the church's mistakes. That's the good news. The church shouldn't give up. The church should go forward learning from our mistakes and taking the gospel of Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth, earth, which we have not yet reached. So, what are our responsibilities now? As I thought about this passage and this message in my personal life and context, I came up with six responsibilities. Number one, rejoice. Thank God for the faithfulness of Christians throughout history who have obeyed the Great Commission, allowing you to hear the gospel and to be seated in a Christian church this morning. That's not cause to feel guilt that is caused to rejoice in the grace of God. Second, repent. For some here, this is an invitation to repent for the first time and express faith in the resurrected King, entrusting yourself to Him as your Savior, your Lord, and your treasure. And for others, that means repenting of the fact that our allegiance is at best to Him mixed, that our hearts are not warmed by the gospel as they ought to be, and that we are allowing many other distractions to keep us from being involved in the Great Commission. So rejoice, repent, third, reevaluate. It may well be that God is calling someone here from among our church to reach an unreached people group or to consider giving up their time and linguistic skills to Bible translation, or calling a parent to loosen their iron grip on a child 
so that child feels free, enabled, and supported in 15 or 25 years should God call him or her to go reach an unreached people group. Inquire of God. In light of what you now know, what might God be inviting you into? Now, we are prayerful in the years ahead that through sojourn, God will send individuals and couples out from among us to preach the gospel and plant churches among the unreached. And maybe God is inviting you into that task. Number four, resource. Not everyone can go. But many of us can give so that others can go. About $47 billion is given annually in the cause of missions. $47 billion. You want to take a guess at how much of that is sent to reach unreached people groups? 1%. There are approximately 400,000 missionaries in the world today. Any guess on how many of those are reaching unreached people groups? 11 to 12,000. So that means less than 3% of our mission personnel and less than 1% of our mission's giving goes to the unreached. North Americans spend more money on pet Halloween costumes than on outreach to the unreached people groups of the world. 97% of our missionaries and 99% of our money goes to places that already have a gospel witness. So I'd encourage you to look into ministries like Radical.net, Radius International, that are equipping individuals and couples for the harsh realities of reaching the unreached with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if you're interested in learning more about what our new friends are doing I'm not saying names for reasons. This is recorded. Then reach out to them. Consider inviting them to dinner. Take them out to coffee for breakfast. Encourage them with your story of how you came to faith. Hear their story. And potentially consider financially supporting them if God would lead you to that. Number five, request. Pray for those who are going. And pray the Lord of the harvest would send more laborers into his harvest field. Number six, re-engage. Part of the missions of a local church is to continue to make disciples in a community, to baptize new followers of Jesus, and to teach those disciples to obey everything Jesus taught. Most of us can be involved in at least sending others to the field. And all of us can be involved in praying. And parents, you may not be able to go, but are you raising your child up in a way that might be preparing them to go to an unreached people group? Are you propping up the pop culture heroes of our day for your children? Or are you opening their eyes to the real-life heroes that have gone and will go spending decades of their lives, forgotten and unsung, preaching the gospel, planting churches, and honoring Christ. Friends, this is the task that Jesus has set before us until he comes again. 
And I hope we walk away not feeling guilty about what we have not done, but rather feeling thankful for God allowing us to come in contact with the gospel in the ways that he has, and second, burdened that more people would have that experience. So Christian, two questions. Does your heart towards the nations reflect God's heart for the nations? And second, do your actions back up your answer? Do your financial stewardship, does your prayer life, your priorities, your parenting goals, do they reflect God's heart for the nations? Let's pray together. Father, we are so grateful for the fact that you have brought us into a Christian church where we are gathered this morning singing songs about Jesus in our language, reading the Bible in our language, hearing the gospel in our language. And these are all gifts of your grace, and we thank you. Father, we pray that you would send more laborers into your harvest field, where right now there are 3.4 billion people without access to the gospel, who will live and die never hearing about a Savior that can save them from their sins. Father, we pray our ble- your blessing upon our church, as the psalmist says, so that your name may be known among all the people, so that your ways and your salvation might be known among the nations. Father, help us not to hoard resources individually or as a church. Help us to be generous with what you've given to us so that more people might hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we pray these things in the name of our Savior Jesus. Amen.